Hello there, welcome to episode 77 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, edging closer to that big 100. Uh, joining me in the uh, the hot seat is the boisterous and, uh, you know, upbeat and uh, very chatty in the introduction, uh, Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? Well, I am actually, but I'm, <laughs> I'm very invigorated. Deeply, deeply invigorated and uh, refreshed. Uh, I enjoyed. Uh, we, me and Nicole Ken had a, a ramble in the country, in Surrey countryside, and we paid our respects at uh, Mother Ludlam's cavern or cove, cave even, or cave. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah which, we, I, which was very gone. It's very, it was interesting, wasn't it? We were we we go on these little uh, occult field trips, don't we, from time to time, and. Uh, um you know uh and check out the uh the folklore of the area when we can and uh it was in a very verdant uh cranny of of sorry and uh, uh and that the, it was it was idyllic though it couldn't be more idyllic i mean it's very it's a very humble site really i mean but uh, yeah, it had quite an atmosphere to it and, and like i say purely very uh, could be more idyllic really uh, enormous amount there was i've never seen so many sort of um holly trees on the way on the routine mm-hmm. and um the, i mean there was a there's a there's a stream there i mean there's a legend of a, a wise woman or a witch called mother ludlam and um i wonder if she was an actual person or maybe she was the genus loki or the, or the spring who knows that's me speculating away there as i am want to do at times and um but you can't actually go in these days because there's a fall in the 70s inside the little cave but there's a very elaborate sort of trellis work which is sort of out the front which uh, yeah it's quite nice adds, isn't it yeah adds to, adds, adds to the picturesque um quaintness of it all and it's uh we we've picked up a book called occult britain um it's the the hellbore guide uh the hellbore is like a magazine that comes out i think it's is it monthly or it's like quarterly maybe but it's a, it's a really good little um magazine or if you want to call it that or journal um but they've released a book called occult britain and we've been using that as our kind of uh or uh inspiration to go to different uh different locations it's very really superior is uh, i'm sure that could be worthy of a an episode in and of itself well if they ever answer their bloody email it will do yeah <laughs> anyway but yeah you've been in mother ludlam's cave for two weeks i think because we haven't heard you for two weeks on the show so. well i mean you know that we <laughs> the, the ratings have plummeted mark <laughs> we had to get you back no no <laughs> well you know the uh, uh, I was, yes well, I, I, it wouldn't be fitting to talk about that. Yeah, it, it, you, know, you know. Yeah, people thought I'd lo- locked you in the cave. I think, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about this week? Well, we're we're very honoured and uh, very privileged, I, I believe, that we have a very important uh, and distinguished um, figure to talk to today, and that is uh, Long Milo Decat. He's a, an excellent uh, spokesman for a very important August organisation that's influenced uh, occultism in general and people's lives in uh, very interesting ways. Mm-hmm. ways. Uh, and uh, the, we, he's in particular, what we're focusing on, is uh, his, his anthology, Horror and the Occult, and the, the crossover and connections between those sort of those themes, those sorts of uh, folkloric, mythological, fantastical themes, the unconscious, and how they all sort of boil together and um, spewed out the unconscious mind in this 
particular form of literature. Yeah, so I mean, this is I think the sixth time we've had Lon on the show, in, uh, either as a guest or as a contributor to a, a theme of a show. Um, but it's always a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to speaking to Lon again. And it's, it's a subject that interests us deeply, isn't it? I mean, horror and the occult—two things that kind of uh, we bonded over, even you could say. You know? Yeah, I mean, the word—I <laughs> mean, the the, the in French, in France, France, apparently they they have this phrase fantastic film the, the film of the fantastical which is a like an umbrella term for all sorts of different things from japanese rubber monster films to sort of more the more gothic end of things and science fiction and in a way i think that sort of does it better i think it's a it's a much broader church in lots of ways and uh, and uh, yeah and uh, they have their roots in literature in, in in the gothic literature in particular but also in folklore mythology and uh, you know which goes back deep into the unconscious the roots of the unconscious mm -hmm. anyway let's uh let's get mr duquette on the line it gives me great pleasure to uh, re uh, announce our returning guest, uh, Lon Milo Duquette. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How have you been? I've, I've been well, thank you, and trying to stay well. Excellent, excellent. So uh, how did you, uh, I think we spoke to you last during uh, the pandemic. How, how, how did you weather the entire thing? Were you, did, we, did you manage to uh, avoid the lurgy or did you... Yes, I knock on wood. Uh, Constance and I both have uh, uh, taken every precaution we possibly can, and so far, so good. Excellent. That's great news. So we're going to talk to you today about uh, a book that came out, I think, a few years ago, um, but we didn't actually catch up with you on it, which is uh, Horror and the Occult. Um, so let's uh, go, go back. Like, when did you talk about like how you first became a fan of, of the kind of the horror genre? I was born in in southern california and uh uh in 1948 and growing up by the beach in uh in the early 50s in in some of the the it was actually that cutting edge of you know rock and roll was being was being uh literally being born and uh, it was sort of a, it was very, very cool place to, uh, uh, to, to be a kid. And I was really excited and television had just started and, and uh, we were the first family on the block with the television and, and I was so, so excited. But my mother's relatives lived in Nebraska. And Nebraska is about, oh, I don't know, uh, 2,000 miles, 1,500 miles uh, west in the very middle of the continent. Uh, and, and it's about uh, 1,500 years back in time, okay? Uh, well, it was cowboy days, and, my, and we'd, we'd visit Nebraska and I was just appalled at the outdoor toilets and the and the the uh, crank telephones and electricity was new to to certain parts of the uh, the places and it, I, the primitiveness of it just just 
freaked me out as a little kid when we'd go back for for va vacations to visit my mom's folks. And I couldn't wait to get back to California and and uh, listen to rock and roll on the or rhythm and blues we call it in those days. Uh, and then I was absolutely shocked when my dad announced that we were going to move to Nebraska. And it was like driving a stake through my heart. It was, I didn't want to go there uh, more than anything because it was just, uh, they were, I don't want to sound unkind about how that rough, uh, environment saps the creative life juices out of people's personalities. Uh, it's it's bitter cold in the winter and it's blazing hot in the in the summertime and there is no arts. Uh, it, it's it's a wasteland, a terrible wasteland, and it just sort of saps uh all of the any virtue of character out of it turns people into zombies okay at least that's how i was looking at it from my uh seven-year-old uh point of view but we moved to nebraska and i was incredibly depressed and uh surrounded by it was like going back in time literally and uh but it it did succeed in allowing me to uh get in touch with sort of a, a melancholy uh ecstasy <laughs> if if you could call it that and uh I was left alone. My dad uh, would go out drilling water wells, and my mom had a job, and and I'd be left alone at the house uh, a lot, just sort of staring out out the, the 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 window, and it's so silent, and there's no airplanes flying over, and there's no uh, there's no noise. It's so it's so quiet, and the the wind would blow these gossamer curtains and and i just stare out in the space and just uh uh almost pray no i did i'd pray to i didn't believe in jesus but i play, prayed to flying saucer people to just come take me out the, out of nebraska pick me up you can perform medical experiments on me just get me the hell out of nebraska and one day I guess I was nine years old. I did something unthinkable for a nine-year-old Nebraska boy, alone in the house one sweltering uh, weekday morning. And I found something to read. And so I had to set all that up so you know what my mindset was. I just wasn't... Uh, looking for a comic book or something like that. And and my dad had a set of, uh, oh, sort of, uh, you know, the greatest hits of literature. 
kind of thing. And um, I tried to look at the uh, last of the Mohegans, and that, that, that just didn't interest me that much. But then I found Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And it had titles like uh, Murder at the Rue Morgue and Mask of the Red Death and and uh, Telltale Heart. And uh, I started to read Poe. And for a nine-year-old kid, I was just, you know, one step from being completely illiterate. And about every other uh, sentence, I had to look up words. <laughs> and some of them are lengthy, you know, quotes in French and, and Latin and things like that. So I had to, to read Poe uh, painstakingly slow. Uh, with a dictionary and an encyclopedia right at, at hand too. And that's where I fell in love with the horror genre because it was, it was spiritually uplifting more than I've ever been spiritually uplifted uh, uh, before, you know, in sort of masochistic uh, uh, way, but it felt so much like being plucked out of my home in California and moving to Nebraska. It was it was maddening, and I started sort of to identify with the inner dialogue or the inner monologue of someone going mad. And that's Poe, okay? <laughs> that's so Poe, okay? Uh, because I've been talking to myself just, just like that, except without the honey-sweet language of, uh, of Poe to, uh, to frame the, the ideas in. And so that's where, that's where it began. Then uh, we had a little theater in, in town, a movie theater. And I saw every, every film that played at that theater for the next 10 years. Sometimes I'd see them four or five times in, in a weekend, okay? And that was the golden age, let's say 1955 through uh, uh, 19... No, 63 or four. That was the golden age of uh, the black and white B horror films. And uh, the I love the gothic, the gothic horror things. And I love the 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 new sort of uh, uh, atomic atomic post atomic war b movie uh things and monster movies and things like that i just i just became a real horror nerd <laughs> yeah i think for me the thing that gri uh, gripped me with horror was was film first then literature it's i think it just sort of imprints itself on certain people doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah well it's 
you know, I, I didn't think of it as a spiritual uh, in a in a spiritual dimension until until much much later. Uh, actually, I didn't I didn't start to seriously put it in in uh, that context or interpret it in that context and. Till I was, uh, you know, approached by uh, uh, Wiser to curate uh, uh, to curate the book. Uh, what's the title? The Book of Horror and or in the Horror and the Occult. Horror and the the Occult. Yes. I was just going to say at that early time, and was was Poe regarded in the, with the same reverence that he is? You know, is, was it proper literature? Was it respectable literature? Or was it, you know, was it, was it regarded or maybe a bit like a sort of, uh, well, they, they use this phrase, don't they, guilty pleasures of the, of the sort of the fifties sort of monster movies? Or was it regarded? A, a, a little bit, but uh, his his poetry sort of helped elevate him to a, a level of literary respectability, where, uh, like the Raven, of course, was. Uh, 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 included in textbooks and things like that at the at the time, and there was a certain air of of uh, uh, respectability, uh, Annabelle Lee, and uh, things like that. I think also in our in in my lifetime, uh, I mean, a person that was uh, profoundly influenced and uh, by Poe. I mean, there were many. Is uh, the one of the most notable is uh, who's included the um, in the anthology um, is H.P. Lovecraft and um, and in my lifetime I've seen the shift in in the culture you know up in this part of the world you know there's the you know Penguin Classics are now you know producing his his works under the classic you know under the classic heading and uh, they they seem very differently than they were especially totally very much so in his lifetime and there's been a, a big cultural shift over the years which has been odd to see it's been very slow and also it's had all sorts of it's had set, uh, literally sent out tentacles in all sorts of different directions Quite, yeah uh, you, you know you're getting better when you're when your name turns into an adjective <laughs> exactly yes absolutely I, you, you know I, you've made it you know? yeah absolutely i think also as well you know like in terms of uh like art i think one of the biggest it's not so obvious at first but uh, i think like you know the 19 i think it's 1978 79 that the original alien film with geiger's design of the alien that uh, you know that's there's something love, very lovecraftian about that and um you might think oh how does that really fit but it but it's so you know it, i mean lovecraft is an odd one because it's a sort of it's got one foot in the sort of gothic the the gothic murkiness of your, your you know those those castles and um and um, sheeted phantoms and skeletons and then on the other hand he's 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 up in the stars isn't he he's he's uh he's it's like a kind of science it's a science fiction but he's got a very particular take on it yeah i definitely see uh uh, if I was going to, uh, you know, publish uh, or republish uh, an anthology, kind of step by step uh, evolution of uh, of appreciation, anyway, of of the genre, it would be uh, it would be Poe, uh, Robert W. Chambers, and then Lovecraft, kind of kind of in that order, because uh, that's sort of an evolutionary thing. Uh, Chambers was a was a wild 
wild guy and I've got a, co a couple of chambers uh, uh, pieces in the in the book uh, he was unlike Poe <laughs> and Lovecraft to that degree Chambers actually made a lot of money writing okay and uh, oh I don't have the years in in front of me but he was sort of uh, uh, he was writing uh, about the future when the future was 1922. <laughs> so 1880s kind of thing. But anyway, so, sort of post-Civil War uh, consciousness. And he, uh, he was imagining uh, uh, an America that had uh, a sort of... Uh, been taken over by uh, imperialistic uh, 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 military government kind of kind of thing, yeah. and uh, or at least that's how his character was uh, was interpreting things. And he, uh, but Chambers actually just wrote sort of like soap opera uh, romance novels that just made him filthy, filthy rich. But he wrote uh, he wrote another series of things on his own, and I think it's what he really loved. Uh, loosely collected stories under the heading "The King in Yellow." Yeah, I mean that's an excellent. Um, I mean the, the 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 wonderful thing about that is that in every every single every um, each of the stories in the that that collection, uh, the book "The King in Yellow" turns up, and of course if you if you read that, you become, you know, sort of you've, you're doomed to sort of raving, ins yeah. raving insanity. And of course, you're sat there reading the King in Yellow, <laughs> which yeah. is a what's a wonderful device, and very, and again, very reminiscent of the of the Necromonicon. The concept there's something of the Necromonicon in that, isn't there? And it's you know, and the guy was uh, he studied uh, uh, art in Paris. And so the the guy was, you know, really, really, uh, uh, he treated his language, you know, like a like a like a fine, fine painting. He painted with his words, and the words are so, so wonderful. You just you just wanted to talk like that when when you're reading, and uh, so so you're completely disarmed as you get deeper and deeper into the story you're completely disarmed so that you're identifying 100 percent with his descent into absolute madness okay and uh uh the the device that the king in yellow makes everybody who reads it uh, uh, uh go completely bonkers uh, and then, like you said, there you are reading it yourself, you know, so it's, uh, anyway, he's a uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful character that's uh, not appreciated from the, the horror point of view. Yeah, they've never, I, they've never made a film, have they? I mean, they've never made, as far as I'm aware, they've never really, it's not really translated onto the screen in that respect. Yeah, well, I first, uh, yeah, I'd never even heard of the, the thing until around, uh, uh, oh, I don't know when it was in the late 
uh, or late 80s, I guess, uh, somebody, a filmmaker, uh, emailed me and said he wanted to uh, chat about a project. And uh, he was uh, uh, making a film on the King in Yellow, and he uh, uh, he he more or less assumed that I already knew what it was about and stuff like that, and uh, so that's what got me looking it up, you know, and, and getting into it. And he uh, uh, because he wanted to know if I could uh, uh, if I'd be willing to to uh, play a cameo or appear in a cameo. Uh, of the king in yellow and uh uh you know i'll be i'll be a cameo in anybody's anything you know but uh and nothing ever came of it but that that got me going and once i uh once i dis discovered more about uh, uh robert w chambers the more i said god where's this guy been all my life you know it reminds me a bit of my the way I discovered Philip K. Dick, strangely. He was another one of these characters that um, kind of, he was sort of relegated to the kind of pulp world, wasn't he, for a long time. And then um, I, I assume after Blade Runner started to become more of a, you know, more of a name. And then in, again, in my lifetime, I've seen him go from, you know, the being a kind of, not kind of a look down upon sci-fi type of writer and up to now he's considered much more of a a classic you know writer you know uh, i see his uh, books often collected in anthologies and you know in 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 nice bookshops and stuff these days whereas i used to have to collect them you know i used to have to try and track down old 70s copies of his books and 60s yeah. copies so why do you think why do you think that um certain writers sort of become sort of uh find their popularity so many years after their demise do you think well, it's uh, uh, artists are the prophets. Okay, uh, if you want, if you want to uh, uh, get an idea of uh, where human consciousness is uh, is is heading, uh, uh, look to the artists. Look to the music. Uh, I I think it was Plato. Uh, that said, when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the cities shake. And uh, the fugs, remember the village fugs? Uh, the band? Yeah, I'm not sure. Not oh, you, oh, you young people. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's Lost on Me. That's a cultural yeah. reference point, Lost on Me. I'm yeah, not I've not heard of them either. Yeah, the the fugs, F-U-G-G-S, I think, the village fugs. Uh, oh, uh, they hung up around with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Harry Smith. And I think Harry Smith actually produced the their first couple albums. And, uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg and, and uh, New York uh, beat generation melding into hippiedom. Uh, great. My favorite song is Ramses II is Dead. They were too obscene for top 40, but <laughs> they were the hippie underground uh, uh, gods. So, 
my favorite album is It Crawled Into My Hand, Honest. <laughs> yeah, good, so, good song titles, definitely. And good yeah, titles generally. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, I don't know how we got off on the phone. <laughs> I saw, I saw, that is a, a thread for us to pursue. <laughs> which I'm always grateful for. I mean, do you think that the King in Yellow will ever be found on, you know, on the screen? I mean, that wraparound, what, uh, that, just talking about that wraparound, that uh, framing device in the story in the book itself, it, the, it, it, it seems uh, there's some sort of link there in my head between those and those um, the sort of amicus 70s anthology films, you know, because I know that the people who made those were huge fans of, the, of those sort of horror anthologies and... Um, yeah, I wonder if I wonder if it ever will be found. You know, you could. I mean, there could be a story there in itself of somebody trying to make a film about the king. You know, <laughs> and they end up they end up uh, becoming yeah. insane and uh, entering a whirlpool of of, of madness and uh, insanity <laughs> as a result. So there, there we are. There's a plot there for somebody. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> There's Hollywood moguls there. They're around. Yes, <laughs> go on. <laughs> So let's, other ideas about <laughs> let's talk a little bit about oh, absolutely yeah uh, and if you read it you know uh there truly isn't a king in yellow thread that goes between uh uh this series of of uh almost vignette stories uh you know you you can't put a logical Oh, this is why this one is called the King of Yellow, and this is why the King in Yellow, uh, and this is why the King in Yellow poem is appears in this one, and stuff. Uh, it'd be perfect for sort of uh, uh, shortcuts type uh, mm. uh, film, uh, an, an anthology, a portmanteau. It, <laughs> yeah, that's that sort of thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the occult. Um, one thing that's always kind of interested me is and i think this is often the uh a point of disappointment for people when they join magical orders is why do you feel the horror and the occult kind of intersect so well fear <laughs> <Is that it? laughs> i think also i mean i've said this uh, the unconscious i mean it's really it's fascinating when you you give your account as a as a you know very sensitive um fresh fresh very sensitive sold nine-year-old reading poe because poe uh, he, he 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 sounds the depths of psychology it's a profoundly he's a psychological i mean the whole telltale heart um, mm. narrative is all about a psychology but a very kind of i mean it's a fascinating story one, one reason why it worked so well and when it, it broke ground is because you are reading about a murderer who murders an old man for the for no apparent reason no logical reason and and you and you and because and in the narrative you identify with the murderer you identify with the murder you're yeah. not there to solve it you identify with it and so you know and and there's a similar things in, the, in those other stories and there's a there's a very very dark there's a very uh, dark um psychology there which i'm probably you probably uh, you probably don't get until you're much older especially in the uh the Osirian, the the Christian era, 
where we've been, uh, uh, at least in Western civilization, has been uh, uh, totally encouraged or discouraged from uh, uh, recognizing uh, the dark side, our dark side uh, of our nature, which is, you know, from a magical point of view, is just perfectly natural and wholesome and and uh you're not a healthy person unless uh, unless you've uh uh you know got a good uh uh recognition and and uh of uh uh the kind of the flip side of your nature and we've been told to to uh to fear it like a devil actually fear it as the devil and so the the but we've all got it okay and so uh, in the same way that uh, I think uh, children are almost naturally attracted to dinosaurs, okay? The, the thought of dinosaurs, and the more terrifying the dinosaur, the more kids love them, okay? The, that's because they're... Dinosaurs can't hurt you, but they give, they honor what you fear. They, they, they turn it into sort of a god. The gods of the dinosaurs, the, the monster gods. And uh, the reason that, that uh, kids uh, love them and memorize their their names in the same way as they memorize little mantras and little little spells, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Diplodocus, you know. Uh, horror does that to us, too. When we read a book, we can put the book down. When we, when we uh, leave the movie, we can go get some popcorn, you know. Uh, but it, it's there, and we identify with it because it is... It is us. And the fear, fear of the unknown, fear of our own unknown. We're afraid to know ourselves. And the that's why in initiation ceremonies, from indigenous people's uh, initiation ceremonies to to the most highbrow uh, Queen Street Freemasons. Fear is very important. You get, it, every initiation starts with you getting scared and overcoming fear, scared and overcoming fear, scared and then the, 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 Inner guardian scares you. The the Iraeus scares you. And then another officer says, Oh, lighten up. He's okay. I'm his, you know, I'll vouch for him. He's fine. But you get scared. Fear, overcoming fear. That's the mechanism of evolution. Do you think um part of why that kind of intersection happens as well it might be because 
but by its very nature, like the occult is hidden, isn't it? It's a hidden sort of thing that could be around any corner, technically. You know, uh, do you think uh, that makes for a good kind of horror fodder? Do you think that might be one of the reasons it's kind of, you know, it's it's so often betrayed in the horror genre? Yeah, absolutely. And I think whether uh, knowingly or unknowingly, Alistair Crowley picked up on that. If you're going to take me seriously, I'm going to have to scare the shit out of you. And you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to overcome that. Eventually, you'll probably see what I tried to scare the... <laughs> what you were afraid of was exactly what you needed to overcome. Crowley just delighted in freaking out the freak outable. And if you if you are so immature or so unwilling to to face that that side of yourself or that depth of yourself, I don't want you anyway. So I, I'll be happy to scare you away. I was. Uh, are you watching any of the the HBO or Netflix uh, series, The Sandman? Oh no, I've, it's, that's just started, hasn't it? It, or it just came out. I, I need to actually watch that. I haven't seen it yet. Well, I, I, I'm enjoying it, okay, uh, but it, it's almost, uh, uh, I'm not saying, you know, I've discovered any great, uh, anyway, I'm enjoying it, I'm watching it, but uh, just offhand in, in one scene, they're talking about uh, the, 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 evil activities of one of the the noble characters uh, uh, in it. And he said, yes, and, and in the 30s, he was a disciple of Aleister Crowley. <laughs> and that's all you hear. You know, Crowley doesn't appear in it or, or anything. Just, just the name is a boogeyman. Yeah. The end of the pier, Demon King, appears up through the trap door, doesn't he, with a in a cloud of sulfur so it's uh, it's very much like that and 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 also you, like that those themes of self-overcoming and initiation as sort of Nietzsche would refer to it. and also the shadow I mean that brings us totally again to the psychological aspects of you know the relationship with ourselves doesn't it and Crowley actually yeah. he appears in he appears in uh you know in these these modern examples but coming back to this book as well you're in casting the runes uh, uh, Dr Carswell is very loosely based on a a Crowley-esque, a Crowley-esque sort of figure. Well, he's absolutely perfect, and uh, uh, and I think he would just get a big, big kick out of uh, uh, knowing that he was uh, playing that archetypal role in in twenty first century uh, uh, literature. You just, I think. Yeah, I mean, no it, end. Yeah, I mean, casting the runes was—I mean, that was written in 1911. So you know, he he, he could have well aware, been well aware of 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 it. And um, I I don't I don't think it was actually strange. I don't remember him referring to it in any way. But also as well, I mean, you, you were saying about the influence of the the big screen, the silver screen, of and the translation into into the big screen. 
of uh, these these sort of narratives. But also, I mean, there's a very, I mean, I I defy anyone to say to to to, to, to say otherwise. But the well, the best film uh, of its kind, the best film of its kind uh, from the 1950s, 1958, in fact, was the as you would know it, uh, Mr. Duquette, uh, Curse of the Demon. But as we know it, the Night of the Demon, which is the which is based based on that uh, with on that short story Re- elaborated for the a very modern age because instead of the what it has it does still follow those sort of psychological films actually because it's got instead of you know the kind of spiritual good and evil although that's in there as well it's more about the rational and the irrational and the fear of the irrational and the irrational age the the, the apollyon age of order and science and and you know respectability no doubt and then and then this the this very sort of riskal underbelly of the of the sort of dark irrational so you know parts of the of parts of the self and of the world actually well i was really lucky because i got into all of this i was just sort of a a wild uh uh you know anti-war uh folk singing uh hippie and i wasn't a very serious uh scholar or or not even a student i only went to college to score lsd and um so here i am uh, trying to get uh, get into like eastern mysticism and things like that because of uh, i was lucky enough to have an extraordinarily extraordinarily profound series of uh, psychedelic experiences that uh, just sort of snapped me into, oh boy, there's there's big stuff out there, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I want to find out more about myself, you know. Uh, But uh, I was really lucky that when I started to run across Crowley with the with an early edition of uh, the Thoth Tarot, uh, and where I first seriously uh, uh, heard the name Aleister Crowley, I looked it up in my occult dictionary, and it says, famous Scottish Satanist. <laughs> yes, I've seen that. I've seen that. Okay. I've, I've come across that. I was thinking, well, that's superb, because it's wrong on every front, isn't it? It's is wrong it, on Edinburgh. No, actually, actually, I remember now. What it actually says is famous uh, Scottish uh, Satanist who believed he was a reincarnation of Doctor D. Even that's wrong because he he believed yeah. he was a reincarnation of Edward no, Kelly. Really. So it's it's wrong on three <laughs> counts. Yeah. Oh, but uh, but anyway, yeah, you know, and and uh, as far as Satanism was was going. Uh, I'm still working off of uh, things like Rosemary's Baby, and uh, uh, I'm still fresh out of uh, uh, just, you know, getting rid of uh, the born-again Christian uh, duality upbringing and stuff. And, you know, I'm happy to to be uh, heretical, but I sure didn't want to be satanic, you know, not knowing that the satanic thing that I was afraid of didn't exist the way I thought of it (laughs) anyway. And I was just so, so, so lucky to be able to talk with people that knew Crowley. 
and ask them questions, okay, R regarding, you know, was happy to tell me that he didn't kill 120 babies that year, you know, <laughs> and, and he, no, he didn't eat babies. No, uh, that was, and then explained to me what, the, what that was about. And, and without pulling the bad boyness out of it, uh, uh, I was allowed with, you know, Grady, um, uh, could tell me, no, 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 no. Uh, that's true, but it's not true like that. You know, like the, the, the baby eating thing one year or, you know, well, that's, he, he wasn't lying when he said that, but here's what it, here's what he was saying, you know, and I go, oh my God, the guy is brilliant. He's funny. He's, uh, he's just indiscreet. That's all. Yeah. I think that's what I meant earlier when I was saying that, you know, when people join Magical Orders, they often get um, a slight sense of disappointment. I think it's because of the way the way this stuff's been so kind of sexed up, as it were, in, you know, in, in examples like you gave earlier, the like, you know, I think a lot of people join, say, like the OTO or, you know, Golden Dawn or whatever, expecting it to be all kind of bosoms and blood because they've been watching Hammer Horror yeah. films or, you know, <laughs> they've been watching this kind of this version of the, you know what people i guess think the occult might be <laughs> and uh when they actually uh, encounter it they they think oh actually it's not that thing now yeah you, you gotta bring your own bosoms and blood to the table <laughs> <laughs> nobody's gonna get you a girlfriend or a boyfriend and uh as a matter of fact you're going to have to go out on your own and develop charm. <laughs> yeah, that might be an episode title, I think, Bosoms and Blood, but for this one, it might be quite a good one. But, um, but also, so, you know, people seek initiation if they know it or not for self-knowledge. And, uh, you know, if you're doing the work, if you're seriously doing the work, if you're, if you're a bit of a... Um, what should I say? Um, if you if your if your motivations are superficial, then uh, then it's really going to expose those, and you'll go off and do something yeah. else. So if you're actually doing the work, uh, you know that's that's a different matter altogether. And then um, I mean that doesn't that doesn't um, outlaw the the two things don't have a there's no conflict of interest between bosoms and actually. <laughs> Doing, no. being and serious occultists i mean uh, i mean that's the i'd say reconciling those two things is probably one of the most important parts of the great work <laughs> and your your expression of the the art form of your understanding of the of the magic can can just be as uh you know exciting and as titillating as uh as you can bring to the table but it's not part of an organization's uh, uh, you don't learn it. The Boy Scouts doesn't teach it, you know. Uh, so that a lot of people are disappointed uh, when they when they think even in the back of their mind that that's what it might be. But there's a certain amount of it advantage to that disappointment because when i stepped on a bus at midnight in santa Ana, california to drive all night 
up to Dublin, California to take my OTO Minerval initiation in the garage of two people whose names I did not know, whose real names I did not know, who only gave me a motel address to have the bus drop me off at. Uh, I started to have my doubts about whether the blood and bosoms, uh, if I was going to be the blood <laughs> and the bosoms were going to be, going to be uh, uh, old former scarlet women of, of Crowley with dyed red hair and saggy breasts and men leaping about in goat leggings and... Uh, so I started to have my doubts in that eight-hour drive. I had to think about, wow, what if what if everything they said about Crowley was true? My wife doesn't even know the address of where I'm going. She doesn't even have the phone number of where I'm going. I could disappear off the face of the earth. And... Uh, she wouldn't even know where where it was that I that I went, and uh, that fear was so important. That's when my initiation started. My initiation started on an eight-hour bus ride through the night across the abyss of California's Central Valley, and if you've ever been stuck on the I-5 freeway at night, it's the abyss. It's hell, <laughs> okay? And on a bus where you have to actually stop someplace to pee, it really is hell. But I realized that finally when I met uh, uh, Phyllis and Grady, I was so I was so relieved and it was so such a wonderful, uh, Uh, wonderful relief. It literally was a passing through a, a mini abyss. And every initiation, every step you take along the initiation uh, path is a mini abyss crossing similar to this. And and to live through each, each of these horror stories and, and be allowed to process it in, in, in other ways is also little initiations. And it to me, it is a direct thread reaching through the horror genre uh, into the occult initiatory uh, uh, spiritual evolution process. Absolutely. Every 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 step is a birth and a death. And as as long as you've got air in your body, you are you are on that journey. You're still on that journey of initiation and it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing path, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, in the anthology, coming back to that, uh, we were talking about the sort of Crowley and the sort of um, being the sort of the uh, presenting to the mini image of the world of this sort of archetypal, what most people would regard as a black magician. Uh, in interesting contrast to that, and and it's the contrast because she was a contemporary as Dion Fortune is also included, isn't she? The the sealer, Mr. McKett, is uh, yeah. that's included in the uh, in the anthology. I, I think originally it's from. It's from the Secrets of Doctor Taverner, which is like a an, an anthology in itself, nineteen twenty six. 
which is and Dr. Tavener, this he's like an occult detective and he's loosely based or based on her own mentor who called himself Dr. Mon Mon I say that again, Dr. Moriarty. I understand. So that's a, and it's a and that's about an undine, isn't it? It's a sort of yeah. It's, it's about these sort of elemental forces. I one of the things that. Uh, uh, super attracted me when I started to uh, uh, learn more about the Golden Dawn, the original Golden Dawn, was the fact that it was in this, uh, I guess, late Victorian, Edwardian, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson-esque London. <laughs> you know, I could, uh, it was easy for me to put the, the activities and the clothes and the the basic uh, milieu of uh, of uh, Crowley's Golden Dawn because I was always already so familiar with it because of uh, uh, the Sherlock Holmes uh, thing. Even even Sherlock Holmes has. Uh, uh, suggestions of uh, of supernatural uh, uh the hounds uh, hounds of the basket what is basker, basker yeah baskervilles hound of the baskervilles yeah you don't know whether that's that's a monster of some kind you know uh i, I just love that genre so it's it's easy for me to see uh uh McGregor Mathers and Moynya uh, tinkering away at the Horniman uh, Museum at night, and uh, gaslit uh, gaslight London or gaslit London, as they yes, yeah. and yes. Canon Doyle, of course, is is included in in the in the anthology, isn't it? Where they bring a fourth yes. excellent ring of fourth. I must say, I I I've, I've read that not that long ago, and. Um, uh, so uh, you know, it's uh, it's from, written in the eighteen nineties, and and also what one of the things that really struck me about he wrote two mummy stories. I didn't realise that Conan Doyle sort of invented uh, the mummy as a like a horror, the horror fiction of the mummy as we understand it. And uh, the Ring of Foth is very influential on the the Boris Karloff. Uh, yeah. version of the mummy film yes yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> and he's a very urbane he's a very urbane mummy and he's, he's like a sophisticated sort of man of the world and yeah. um he he and also the 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 immor immortality he, he's it's not a blessing it's a curse in that case but the other yeah. one but what's even more intriguing is uh the other version of the mummy story he did was was called lot number name of a number uh, lot number one two four or something of course one two four nine actually I, I, I tell a lie i mean the mummy in that is very different i mean it's it's um it's a sort of a sinewy black thing that leaps out of i mean it's an instrument of destruction it's very much like the this it's not the boris Karloff version of the mummy it's the the the, the mummy's ghost version of the mummy you know which sort of sort of shambles after you and then strangles you it's uh it's it's very much that it's a black sinewy thing that jumps out of trees and 
grots you and drowns you and all, does all sorts of things. But he doesn't talk. And there's a uh, and there's there's also in that in that version of the story there's also like the scroll of life, of course, which ends up in in the Universal films. Is that the scroll of both? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. 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 Yeah. The scroll. Yeah. The scroll of yeah. Yeah. I think it. Is it called the Scroll of Life? Uh, yes, it's, yeah, or maybe they, they call it both things. But yes, you're right. I'm sure you're right. But uh, it brings the mummy to life. And there's also, in the in the universe, I'm sure you remember, uh, in the Universal uh, Horror Films, it's the, it's the Scroll of Foth. Uh, or the, and also Nine Tanner leaves on the, during the full moon. Nine Tanner leaves gives him movement. <laughs> that's right. And the, give him life. That's right. And, uh, that's indestructible. That's right. The more you give him, the more <laughs> animated it becomes. And they and um, they even uh, even in the the little short story, there's there's a they at the end of it, the the the, the mummy and everything is like destroyed in a fire. And um, there's like these leaves, which aren't really elaborated on, but they're like uh, preserved leaves. So there's even a suggestion in the story, only a, a flavour of it, of the, the, the nine tanner leaves during the full moon, which uh, which inevitably somebody wearing a fez is responsible of feeding feeding um, the, the 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 unfortunate mummy. Yeah, I'm sure that. Uh that somebody's tried to get those tanner leaves and smoke them uh, <laughs> well yes well yes well, well I, I think they're supposed to be in an extinct the in an extinct uh, yeah something probably going so. over, aren't they an extinct line of uh you know <laughs> some sort of sh uh, shrub or herb from the that part of, from the ancient egypt yeah bram stoker is uh is uh another uh is another one. There's a Bram Stoker story, I believe, in the, uh, the book also. But uh, now there's no proof, okay? There's no evidence that Bram Stoker was a member of the Golden Dawn, at least as far as I know. Do you know any, anything? Uh, there, there was uh, rumors, but I, I, I don't know. Doesn't, that doesn't seem, no, I don't know why, yeah. Uh, I think that's been sort of ex exploded, isn't it? It's not. It's not. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find evidence. Uh, but I've, uh, I've written a screenplay for, for uh, uh, with a with a Crowley, Crowley as uh, during the breakup of the Golden Dawn, that that era in Crowley's life. Uh, so the the characters in the movie include Yates and Maud Gone and and uh, Florence Farr and and uh, uh, Mathers and Moynihan and, and everybody. So, but uh, I've also inserted Bram Stoker in in my fiction uh, and uh, uh, sort of almost as a comic relief. <laughs> and uh, uh, toward the end, he destroys all of the records of his membership. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Stoker, Stoker did know. I mean, he was uh, he was friends with Oscar Wilde, and he was one of the very few people who went to see him after in during his disgrace. And yeah. um, and Oscar Wilde's uh, wife, Constant Wilde, she was a well, member of the Golden Dawn. She's she's in my story too. 
There yeah. So there is a connection. And, uh, it's not beyond the. He certainly had tea with all of these people, and uh, so uh, uh, not only that, but probably influenced uh, uh, by uh, the the activities going on, the esoteric activities of of that uh, uh, late eighteen hundreds uh, theosophical uh, uh, golden Donish kind of. Uh, uh, movement that was going on, and uh, have you? Uh, I haven't heard uh, that Crowley ever met Bram Stoker, but something in the back of my mind. Uh, the the uh, the the Dracula is on the is a recommended book, isn't it? He recommended yes. that amongst the thing, and it's and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, Constant Wild was was uh, being a member of the Golden Dawn. They, she may not have broken any oaths directly but she certainly i'm sure that, that i can't imagine if if she crossed paths with bram stoker which is very likely um uh considering you know his friendship with wild uh that they didn't discuss that, that they didn't discuss those kind of esoteric or occult themes i mean that seems unthinkable about how small a world it was uh you know yeah. we uh uh the people that hung hung out with each other at that time was a relatively small circle of of uh of people so it's it's not like you know there were thousands of golden dawn members and thousands of irish poets and and and, and writers at at the time so plus you know crowley uh went to Père Lachaise and uh cemetery and chiseled off the the plaque that was obscuring the penis on uh, Oscar Wilde's angel's tomb or tomb's angel. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it was a brass butterfly, wasn't it? And didn't he wear it as a cod piece? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm positive that Constance Wilde would have gotten a huge, huge kick out of, uh, uh, of him doing that, you know? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit because I mean one of the um, uh, definitely inv inv this this is a, a one of the stranger authors in a way because he's he's a, a great horror writer but he also influenced the occult and that doesn't happen very often. Um, let's talk a little bit about H. P. Lovecraft. Like, how did you come about? How did you uh, sort of first get into Lovecraft? He's he's such a um, he seem he seems so connected to the occult through people like Kenneth Grant, obviously, and. Uh, It'd be great to sort of get your take on on, on all of that. Well, I, I confess that of of all of the the major figures uh, that uh, I did not come to H.P. Lovecraft early uh, in my in my studies. I just uh, uh, I just didn't. It's like, oh, gee, uh, do I have room in my brain for another great like this? Uh, but I was, uh, uh, I came to H.P. Lovecraft uh, in, indirectly because you can't avoid, <laughs> you can't afford, avoid uh, bumping into him. And uh, I think the thing that I read earliest was the Dunwich, Dunwich Horror. 
um, my brother Mark, my late brother Mark, which makes it even more spooky now that I I think of it, uh, would uh, read little sections of uh, Lovecraft that he was reading where everything was unspeakable. Everything was, was was ghastly, grotesque, unspeakably pain, uh, and uh, exaggerated statements like that 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 made made uh, Lovecraft in my mind a certain caricature. So I wish I could I could say that I was as uh, uh, expertly educated in Lovecraft as uh, as uh, most people are, but I'm not. A, a, a phrase that I often associate with uh, Lovecraft is that he, he, in one, I can't remember where he writes it, but he, he talks about the, the main character feeling a sense of overwhelming dread as if bat winged hippogriffs looked on through transcosmic gulfs. And I was thinking, well, there's no other writer really who could, who could come up with that. I mean, you, you know, it's sort of Charles Dickens and, you know, of um, the Brontes could never. You know, they, that wouldn't that wouldn't do for them at all. It's, it's a very distinct. It's a very distinct. It's a very distinct. It's a it's a very bizarre image. It's a sort of this gargoyle like image he sort of plants in your head as well. He's very good at that. He's very good at that. And I, I think yeah, like I say, I'm a, I'm a, he's a he's a very distinct writer. He he's sort of coming into his own now, and um, his uh, his influence is sort of sort of a good it bears witness to him. I think really well in a way that he, which he, he completely didn't. I mean, he had a very um, humble attitude to his own work and regarded it as not you know significant at all he got he adored absolutely adored poe he looked up to poe in this sort of wonderful way but um uh, yeah and you can but that in itself is a bit uh, sort of a bit surprising in some ways because the, the, there's a great you know it's a sort of psychologically led poe and um lovecraft is sort of somewhere else altogether isn't he, he sort of in a way lovecraft sort of is very difficult to define i think this is one of the reasons why he's so potent is that he sort of falls between these sorts of you know, he's, he's very difficult to pin down and say, well, is it exactly this one one thing or another? Because in a way, he's, like I said earlier, he's, he's very much a science fiction writer. Well, he's definitely the uh, uh, occult, almost direct uh, uh, link uh, through his uh, uh, recurring uh, theme of the Necronomicon. <laughs> and uh, the the existence of this uh, uh, terribly dangerous book. And uh, so the, the, the spawning of uh, uh, modern versions of the Necronomicon, which we see all, all over the place starting in the, the mid-70s, uh complete with sigils and invocations and and things like that uh that for the most part are are pretty convincing as uh uh a version of what the necronomicon actually might be uh 
the of course i didn't uh well let me back up i was speaking at uh hell state uh fullerton uh for the to the modern religions uh class and uh the afterwards a student came up uh and it was introduced by uh the dr santucci who uh, uh is, whose class i was speaking at um uh, and santucci introduced him and said that his uh uh his paper i think it was his master's uh thesis was on the necronomicon and I go, oh, how interesting that that is, you know. Uh, I said, you know, yeah. I know one of the guys that threw that together, <laughs> and, and uh, I've never seen anybody so curiously heartbroken in my in my life, and uh, so I didn't want. Because I guess the paper was really good. And I'm saying, uh, and I told him what I'm telling you right now, that as a as a workable grimoire, it's great. It's perfect. Okay. It's 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 nice. It's brilliant. Uh and I had to remind him that everybody's grimoire was somebody's made-up Necronomicon. <laughs> The key of Solomon, all the keys of Solomon, you know, was one or a collection of magicians, things that real life people made it, made it up or developed it or brought it through in the same way that all sorts of sacred texts are brought through. So, so I said, I don't want to step on your, you know. But please don't treat this as a historian <laughs> that you've got the mad Arabs uh, uh, photocopy here. So. And also in terms of like literature, the Necromonicon, I mean, other people just as like Lovecraft had to, you know, had that you had got the Lovecraft circle. They, you know, they they wrote about the Necromonicon and, the, and it also turns up from in films and you know, in, in films long after, you know, in the um, sure. um, I've forgotten what it's called now. The uh, the Evil Dead is a reference to Necromicon. I mean, uh, the Necromicon. I mean, the Evil Dead wasn't written by Lovecraft, was it? I mean, <laughs> but it's become this archetypal thing. Archetypal being the key word here. I think all these things, you know, all these things they draw deeply on that. You know, we're back <laughs> with you. You know, like you were saying. Um, about sitting and uh, watching those films in the fifties. I mean, but you know that draws back to the, the the you know the tribe in the cave around the fire, you know, with the the shaman and the yeah. storyteller uh, telling about the gods and monsters and um, and where we are in the the world of gods and monsters. It's something profoundly archetypal. Yeah, and that's why Lovecraft. I think that's why Lovecraft is is endured is endured and that's why i think pose endured and i think this is why these things are still with us is because is because of their, their, their they touch something deeply archetypal in us i, I did wonder like what you obviously we, we had um michael staley on recently and we did a, a show about kenneth grant and the 
Typhonian order and etc. I was wondering what 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 is your view on kind of using, uh, I guess, fictional um, tropes to kind of inform magical practice? Do you do you uh, do you have a, an opinion on that? Yeah, I think there uh, the, the fictional characters are just as alive as. Uh, uh, as non-fictional characters, okay? If a human could conceive of them, a human has created them, and they're real. They're just as real. Uh, so I, I'm all for it. One of my early experiences with uh, uh, observing a, a Goetic evocation or the the technique of Solomonic magic uh was uh, a student of uh uh poke runyon that uh or carol poke poke runyon and uh, uh they operate with a magic mirror you know and a operator and a receiver and they do a, a classic uh 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 solomonic whipping a spirit into a triangle kind of thing and just by the book lesser key of solomon only the magician stands behind the person that uh, that is receiving the vision and it was remarkable it's 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 awesome as a matter of fact and it's so easy to to actually see a spirit in uh appear in visible uh form uh within a the mirror a, a black mirror triangle and uh so uh, we did that for for a few weeks, and everybody had a chance to sit in the driver's seat and and uh, whip up uh, uh, Goetic spirit and send it on its on its way. And then around Christmas time, uh, the student of folks that was doing this I won't uh, uh, share his name because I don't know if he'd, he'd want that. But uh, he said, let's do Santa Claus. And I thought, oh, gee, what are you? Okay. <laughs> and he said, oh, and it whipped up Santa Claus. It was, uh, uh, it was absolutely uh, uh, just as stunning as when you whipped up Andromalius. And... Uh, he says, I've whipped up Bilbo. I've whipped up Gandalf. Uh, who else did he say he's whipped up? These things are archetypal characters. Mythological characters are realer than historic characters. They're much more real. They're much more alive. They're much more deeply impressed in every nerve of our being. And so it's not without, it's, it's completely possible. As a matter of fact, any spirit that we think that we're whipping up is in one form or another a fictional character unique to ourselves. So I'm, I'm all 
I'm all for that. Okay, you could do Star Wars character. You could do Star Trek characters uh, from. Uh, you could do the 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 Hobbit, if they're real to you. If those archetypal uh, uh, characters are real to you, they're alive to you, and they can be evoked, conversed with, sent on errands, ask for information. Just like uh, the more artificial uh, medieval, you know, uh, agares or or uh, payman. And if you want to uh, enrich your understanding of the mythology of these characters, there's plenty of information out there that you can uh, uh, look to see who their bosses were, you know, by by tradition, who their who rules them, what times of day or year uh, that uh, uh, is appropriate, or what uh, what planet uh, configurations are best to. You can fill in the details all you want, but ultimately every character that you're dealing with is sort of a fictional character that's a good way of looking at it um so uh obviously i'm, I'm mindful of um of how much how long we've had you on the on the line so um i i guess one last thing okay. is uh, i'm 74 years old the man's got a pee <laughs> um, so just let us know what have you got coming up next like uh do you have, do you have any more books on the way or any uh any more albums Yes, I've uh, uh, I, I've redone uh, the my novel. Speaking of fictitious characters, uh, uh, the accidental Christ or an, an accidental Christ, uh, and uh, uh, expanded it, added uh, much more characters. A lot. Uh, uh, it's a it's it's something that I wrote thirty years ago and that uh, uh, never got properly published. Uh, but that's coming out on St. St. John's Day, uh, uh, 2023, uh, coming up. And I've just uh, finished up on, on that one. And uh, uh, the book-wise, there's not a new book on the, on the front burner at, at the moment because I'm uh, doing another series of Chinese workshops uh, that are like three hours each and 12 of them, and they have to be translated and things like that. So I'm, I'm very, very busy, busy uh, with that. And every day at uh, 10 o'clock my time, uh, since the pandemic began, so it's almost two years, it is two years now. Uh, every morning at 10 a.m., I do a, uh, a live broadcast on Facebook. And then it's almost immediately uh, uh, turned to a YouTube, reposted on YouTube. Uh, so you can tune in to my ramblings every every morning at 10 o'clock. 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, you're definitely one of our, you know, favorite recurring guests on the show. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you long. So uh, thank you so much for some more of your valuable time. It was an absolute, it was an absolute, I must say this. (laughs) (laughs) It was an absolute delight. Thank you for your work, uh, Mr. Duquette. Uh, It was, uh, I I feel, uh, you know, that meant a lot to me. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. And we are back. Lon's always great. I love, um, I just love having Lon on the show. He's, uh, you know, he's a uh, such he's a character, but he's also uh, a legend. I would say within the uh, the occult world. So it's always an honor. Honor, and it's always great fun. He's a fun, you know. He's a very approachable uh, occult writer, isn't he? I mean, there there are some very, yeah. uh, very dry or very witless or very, uh, you know, um, not to say that their work's bad, but you know, but Lon's always he's a kind of a mixture of both, in my opinion. He's a he's a really good writer, but he's also a really good personality. You know, I think that's and uh, doer. He's mm. you know he's not he doesn't shy from the the nitty gritty. There's a whole life. There's a whole life of nitty gritty where. On my logicette's concerned, in the best possible sense of the word, I mean that in the very best, but you know, in the most, you know, exalted sense of the word. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 real work there, and um, as well, and you can see that in his best work. I mean, for me, you've got um, you've got uh, knocking vision magic, which is like his magnum opus, really, isn't it? It's a, a very important work. I mean, he's got mm. the. I mean, he's he's most. Uh, it's his most recent, most significant work. Uh, his biography, "My Life with the Spirits," mm-hmm. excellent. And um, the, what was originally called "The Magic of the Lima," later became "Magic of Alistair Crowley." Made that uh, that particular um, path, you know, very accessible and approachable, mm. uh, and for for many people. Yeah, yeah. And what did you uh, did you feel you touched upon enough? Well, I, I, it's always the way, isn't it? I mean, it's always the way. I mean, it's a good in a good way, you know. It's it's always good to be wanting more, and uh, we yeah, there's things we could have explored further, but uh, you know, there's, we always we're constrained by time, and um, yeah, but hopefully, I anyways, not for me to judge. Let the you know, the, let the uh, a very discerning audience uh, hopefully. You're listening to this post, and uh, you you'll be led to want to read. Go to the source. Go mm. to re- go to read the source and um, be introduced. Either return to it or be introduced to new to to, to new writers, new ideas. Yeah, the book uh, <clears throat> Horror in the Occult. It's uh, published by Wiser, and it's still very much available um, on Amazon and all your other favorite bookstores it's a it's a it's a nice little volume actually i quite like it. it's got a very lurid cover we like a lurid cover don't we i, I live for lurid covers <laughs> I, I i mean i'm so fuzzy about it i will only read certain books if they have particularly lurid covers i mean <laughs> I, they're in the 70s they produced uh, dion fortune's uh, you know series of books goatfoot god sea priestess moon magic uh, the winged ball etc i mean apparently they're being very heavily edited in those editions so um, um, I wish I've only just relatively realised, but I, I'm sure that with those intensely lurid covers, 
you enjoy. You can, I've, I've enjoyed them more. The worth of the cover alone. I mean, you can get so much from the cover. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, I'm sure that helped Dennis Wheatley's book sell, for God's sake. But yeah. Well, they, they also present lots of um, quite key occult ideas in a very uh, digestible and agreeable way. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, we at, at the time of recording, we are 17 subscribers away from 1,000 on YouTube. So will you be one of those 17? Will you finally shut me up and get us over the 1,000 line? Um, I don't even know why I, it, I'm, I care about it so much. It's just become a, it's become a target. It's become a target that I need to, uh, to reach now. So 17 people. We have many, many listeners. 17 of you. Go to sit in now, one word, on YouTube and just click subscribe. You can, you know, you don't have to do anything. It's, you know, it doesn't cost anything. It's free. But if you also, if you want to, um, I've been enjoying talking to our listeners on, on Instagram at sitting now. Uh, Instagram seems to be the best way of getting in contact with us. We used to run a Facebook page, but I don't understand how the mechanics of the group works and, you know, how it works as a, as a, functional thing so i don't really use uh the facebook group and but instagram's a very good one um twitter as well i'm on there as well at sitting now so yeah get in touch we like talking to people we like recommendations we like feedback even if you hated it just let us know um but anyway. well, if you hated ken well yeah if you hated ken i mean i do I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he comes here, you know. <laughs> yeah, I see. I see how it is. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> on that bombshell, uh, <laughs> I'll see you guys next week. I believe we are back with Richard Gavin, I think. But yeah, we'll see. Anyway, I'll see you all next week. <laughs>